You are listening to the sermon podcast of Connection Church, a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. Join me in Psalm 71. The title of this song is Forsake Me Not When My Strength Is Spent. In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me and rescue me. Incline your ear to me and save me. Be to me a rock of refuge to which I may continually come. You have given the command to save me, for you are my rock and my fortress. Rescue me, O my God, from the hand of the wicked, from the grasp of the unjust and cruel man. For you, O Lord, are my hope. My trust, O Lord, from my youth. Upon you I have leaned from before my birth. You are he who took me from my mother's womb. My praise is continually of you. I have been as a portent to many, but you are my strong refuge. My mouth is filled with your praise and, will, and with your glory all the day. Do not cast me off in the time of old age. Forsake me not when my strength is spent, for my enemies speak concerning me. Those who watch for my life consult together, and they say, God has forsaken him. Pursue and seize him, for there is none to deliver him. O God, be not far from me. O my God, make haste to help me. May my accusers be put to shame and consumed with scorn and disgrace. May they be covered who seek my hurt. But I will hope continually and will praise you yet more and more. My mouth will tell of your righteous acts, of your deeds of salvation all the day, for their number is past my knowledge. With the mighty deeds of the Lord I will come. I will remind them of your righteousness, yours alone. O oh God, from my youth you have taught me, and I still proclaim your wondrous deeds. So even to old age and gray hairs, O oh God, do not forsake me until I proclaim your might to another generation, your power to all those who come. Your righteousness, O oh God, reaches the high heavens. You who have done great things, O oh God, who is like you? You who have made me see many troubles and calamities will revive me again. From the depths of the earth, you will bring me up again. You will increase my greatness and comfort me again. I will also praise you with the harp for your faithfulness, O my God. I will sing praises to you with the lyre, O Holy One of Israel. My lips will shout for joy when I sing praises to you. My soul also, which you have redeemed, and my tongue will talk of your righteous help all the day long, for they have been put to shame and disappointed who sought to do me hurt. God, I pray that you bring these words to life for us today, that we would see Jesus and him only. In his name, amen. If this psalmist were alive, I would... I would want to invite him over to my house to have a cup of coffee and a conversation. It's clear from his writing that he's had a challenging life. 
which doesn't, seem, uh, doesn't appear to have improved much in this psalm. But what's clearer is that he has had a firm resolve on his dependence on God his whole life. I don't know if you know anyone like that. Anyone whose life is, is characterized and marked by this kind of lifelong faithful dependence on the Lord. But interactions with these types of people are some of the most encouraging, emboldening, lovely, memorable, Christ-revealing conversations you can have. You know why? Because the conversation with these kinds of people isn't full of good advice. It's full of good news. And that's an important distinction because we're all looking for good advice every day, aren't we? We're looking for the right strategy or, or secret to whatever the thing is that's bothering us or to, what, to whatever the, the secret is to a long and happy life. And this has probably been one of the most popular marketing clickbait tactics of all time. Everybody's got the solution to this, right? I don't know. We all like to read those interviews with with the centenarians, don't we? The folks that, that live to be a hundred or over about their secret to a long life. Those, those things include, you know, eat, eat this. You should eat this thing. Or you should not eat this thing. Don't use plastic. Get exercise, but not too much exercise. Get good sleep. Be a good person. Drink coffee. And then a year later, you will read an article that says you should not drink coffee anymore. And then a year later, you can drink coffee again. You should take these types of vitamins. You should read every day. You should get out of, outside. You should use this particular face cream. You should do your stretches. You should brush your teeth. You should floss every day. And so on and so on and so on and so on. And I get tired by those things. My goodness. Don't get me wrong. Some of these things are good pieces of advice. And it's good for us to take that advice sometimes. But good advice without good news will not last. In fact, no matter what advice we take, there is an inevitable end for it and for us. You can't get around it. The good advice we get only gets us so far and never gets us all the way home. It never gets us perfection or sustainable happiness and joy or long-term lasting hope. Only good news does that. And the good news I'm referring to is the gospel of Jesus. Did you know that, that the word gospel simply means good news? And the good news of the gospel permeates all of life. It helps us discern good advice from bad, and it always, always fulfills its promises in Jesus. This guy knew that. This guy knew that no matter what, God would get him through to the other side. So, through God's Word, we, we actually do get to spend some time with him this morning, and listen to his good advice, grounded in the good news of who God is and what he has done for him and for me and for you. If I could ask this psalmist, hey, hey psalmist, what's your secret? 
How'd you do it? How do you have so much hope and faith in, in God? I think this psalm reveals what his answer would be. And in a way that someone who has had a long time to test it out would say, I think he would say this. I think he would say, Joe, Connection Church, let me tell you about relying on God's help. Let me tell you about reflecting on His faithfulness. Let me tell you about relaying His greatness to others. Let me tell you about resting in God's redemptive power. And let me tell you about rejoicing in God's deliverance. While good, good advice fades, good news lasts. And because of that, we can rely on God's help now and forever. So we don't know exactly the trouble this man was facing or why, but it seems his situation was dire. If it is in fact David who wrote this psalm, and it is near the end of his life, the connection may be a story which you can read in 1 Kings when David's oldest son, Adonijah, conspired against him to usurp the throne from David and prevent Solomon, David's other son, from taking the throne. Now you'll find in that story that it didn't work out very well for him because he and all who were following him, that is Adonijah, became too scared to go any further with the plan after Solomon was anointed king. They got too scared and basically just fled. They were like, I'm not going to, I don't think this is a good idea to do this. And you want to know how Solomon's people scared off Adonijah and all, all, of, all of his people? You want, to, you want to know what their secret weapon was? They sang really loudly. They sang and they played trumpets. And it says in 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 40, that the that the sound was loud enough to split the earth. Worship is powerful, my friends. So whether it's David or not, verses 1 through 4 in Psalm 71, verses 1 through 4 and 9 through 13 reveal two things that we ought to pay attention to. The first is how vulnerable, weak, and frail we as humans are, and how strong and mighty God is. Many of the Psalms speak about being pursued by physical enemies or even armies with the very lives of the psalmists at stake. Now, I don't know very many people who have this same problem these days. But as 1 Peter 5 tells us, I do know that we have an enemy that prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. This is our adversary, the devil, as Peter says. And he works hard to tempt you to trust and worship or fear anything other than Jesus. And usually, those temptations to trust other things seem really good, don't they? The secret to a long and happy life, right? The devil is crafty. The devil doesn't show up in a, in a black robe and, and red horns. No, the, the Halloween costume people got that one wrong. The devil shows up as something you actually really want or you think you really need, or you think you cannot overcome. When Satan tempted Jesus in the wilderness in, in Matthew chapter 4, he tempted him with very attractive things. 
He tempted him with, with food to quench his deep hunger. Power and dominion over the earth, he said, this could all be yours if you, if you bow down and worship me. He even, the devil even appealed to Jesus' pride by telling him to prove himself, by casting himself off a ledge, and then calling forth the angels to come and save him. Well, Jesus perfectly resisted these temptations and gives you and I the power to do the same by the power of the Holy Spirit. So how do we know that? Listen to how the psalmist expresses these verses. Expresses in these verses many true things about God and what He is like. There's so many of them in just, in just nine verses. God has strength. God is a refuge, a rock, a fortress. There is no army or attack waged by the devil that the Lord has not already overcome. God has protective power. He provides rescue and deliverance. God has authority. He has given the command, the command to rescue. Yes, the command to rescue the psalmist. It's not, it's not a casual request. It's an order. And did you notice that God is available? He inclines His ear to hear us when we call to Him. He listens and responds. He knows and loves us. God is close to the weary and brokenhearted, the downtrodden and depressed. God is steadfast. There never comes a time when, when God casts us off he is with us from before our birth to the very end. And God is just. He is, he is right and holy. He knows our accuser and He has put Him to shame. Sin and darkness cannot exist in front of Him because He casts out all darkness. The psalmist has seen these attributes of God demonstrated over the course of his lifetime. And he is encouraging us that we too can rely on God's help in all of these ways. We can rely on His strength, protective power, authority, availability, closeness, steadfastness, and justice. And the psalmist is intentional too about remembering the ways God has been faithful over the course of his lifetime. He reflects on God's faithfulness, and we can too. Look at verses 5-8. through eight. The psalmist says that it's the Lord in whom he's put his hope. It's the Lord in whom he has put his trust from his youth. And it is the Lord that he's leaned upon from before his birth. It's the Lord who took him out of his mother's womb. And it's the Lord who receives his continual praise. He says, I have been a portent to many. Portent means like he's been a warning or a sign to many, a warning of, of some a momentous event or calamitous thing that is to come. And so we can read into that that, that this psalmist has been in, in situations a lot of times in his life where he's, he's probably telling people hard things or telling people true things that need to be said, but it was, it was uncomfortable to do so. And yet he says, but you are my strong refuge. He has a stockpile of evidence 
about the faithfulness of God, which we so easily forget, don't we? And that's been true about humans since sin entered the world. We forget about God's faithfulness and and turn to our own understanding for guidance. The Israelites did it over and over and over again when they were freed from slavery in Egypt. Not even the most miraculous event was enough to keep them resolved in their liberation, especially after a generation had passed. And this is just one example, but let's let's go back and look at this. Uh, Imagine for a moment the spectacle of this event. The Israelites had finally been freed from captivity after 430 years. And as they began to flee Egypt, the Pharaoh had a change of heart. And so the Pharaoh dispatches his army. He wants them to go out there and recapture the Israelites and bring them back to Egypt. And they're armed with all their, all their things. They got the, the, the horses are ready, the chariots, the spears. The whole army is after them. And so here are the Israelites, basically taking whatever they could carry out of Egypt, and they turn around and they see this army. Pharaoh's army is after them, and they walk right up to the edge of the Red Sea, and it looks like all hope is lost. It's over. The freedom that they wanted, that they wanted so badly, they only got that far, and it's over. Well, what happens next? Something none of the people could do on their own. None of them could rescue themselves on their own. God sends down a thick cloud to separate the Egyptian army from the Israelites so they can't see. Moses stretches out his hand over the Red Sea and a mighty, severe east wind picks up and separates the water of the Red Sea such that the Israelites are able to pass through on dry ground, the Bible tells us. They make it to the other side. And just as they do, the Egyptian army makes it through the fog and they start following them. The whole army is running through that dry ground after the Israelites. And just as the Israelites get to the other side, Moses reaches out his staff again and those waters come crashing down on that mighty, mighty army. And the Israelites watched the whole thing. How incredible would that be to watch that unfold? Now, what the Israelites were not expecting is to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. They saw this great thing happen. It says in Exodus 14, 31, right as this event ended, it says, Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in His servant Moses. And then the wandering began. And then the desert began. And this time was not meeting their expectations. Even though God was providing all that they needed, many of them grumbled about that situation. Especially the bread God was providing for them on a daily basis. The nourishment that God was giving them day in and day out. I must have, they weren't happy with it. I guess it must have been pretty tasteless. I don't know. But they weren't pleased. Did you know some of the Israelites wanted to go back to Egypt? 
They didn't like that wilderness so much, they just wanted to go back to Egypt and be, a, be in slavery again. Some of the Israelites wanted to wish they had just died with the Egyptians in the sea. It was so bad. They didn't trust Moses anymore. They questioned his leadership. They built an altar to a false god. They were a mess. But God was still faithful to them. God was still faithful to them, guiding them along the way, faithful to His promise to deliver them to the promised land. And it wasn't until a generation later that it happened. Finally, this is after Moses died, the Israelites, led by Joshua at this time, crossed over the Jordan in another miraculous parting of water to the land God had promised them, finally. And I want you to listen to what happened next in Joshua chapter 4, beginning at verse 4. Then Joshua called the twelve men from the people of Israel, whom he had appointed, a man from each tribe. And Joshua said to them, Pass on before the ark of the Lord your God into the midst of the Jordan, and take up each of you a stone upon his shoulder according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel, that this may be a sign among you. When your children ask in the time to come, what do these stones mean to you? Then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it passed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. And then further in verse 20, And those twelve stones which they took out of the Jordan, Joshua set up at Gilgal. And he said to the people of, of Israel, When your children ask their fathers in times to come, what do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which He dried up for us until we passed over, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. They were witnesses to such incredible deliverance. They wanted to remember and reflect on God's faithfulness not only for themselves, but for their children so they wouldn't forget. So they would make sure their children knew what God had done for them. They built the stones of remembrance to recall how God saved them. We celebrate communion to remember how God saved us. And when our children ask, what does that bread and wine mean to you? We shall tell them that God sent His Son Jesus to part the impassable waters of sin and death so that we could one day be with Him in the land He promised us. Do you see the gospel seed here in this story? Do you see how God made a way through impossible circumstances to save His people? Do you see how his people were doomed without his intervention? But God keeps his promises and is mighty to save so that like Joshua and like this psalmist, let us relay his greatness to others. This psalmist, in verses 4 through 18, does not want to die until he's had the opportunity to share God's greatness to the next generation. 
Look at it with me in, in verse 18. So even to old age and gray hairs, O God, do not forsake me until I proclaim your might to another generation, your power to all those to come. I come, uh, I come from a, a very long line of Lutheran pastors and teachers. My last name is Obermuller, after all. Uh, on my dad's side, we've been able to trace our family tree all the way back to Reformation days. And so that's been uh, something true for my family for a very long time. And then sometime in the mid-1800s or so, my family emigrated from Germany to America and ulti ultimately made their way to Kansas. And uh, they were teaching and preaching as, as they did. And so it's been really fun for me to, uh, to review some of that family history again. And as I was looking through some of the information we have about this, I was, I was taking special note of how um, nobody uh, whose photographs we have, um, nobody is smiling. And uh, as I was thinking through that, I thought, boy, what a, that must have been a fairly unpleasant journey to get all the way to Kansas and say, this is it. Now I understand why maybe they weren't smiling so much in those photographs. It must have taken tremendous faith, tremendous endurance, and a close-knit, loving community to make that happen, that's for sure. So I feel incredibly blessed by this tradition of faith in my family, and I tell you about it for two reasons. The first is that despite the circumstances of their lives, there must have been people in my family and people within their church that remained steadfast in the faith and saw to it to share the reasons for that faith with the next generation. The other reason I tell you this is because somewhere along the way in my family tree, I don't know where, someone, somewhere, at some time, told somebody in my family the good news of the gospel and it transformed their life. And now, generations later, generations later, I'm standing here by the power of Jesus and the Holy Spirit and nothing else, declaring the good news of Jesus to you and to me. That's pretty amazing. It really is. And I wonder this morning how the gospel might begin to transform you and your family tree. No matter where in the generational journey you find yourself, so maybe your story is like mine. Maybe you can look back on generations of, of faith. Or maybe your look back doesn't go that far. Maybe it's your parents or maybe even your grandparents who were the first believers. Or maybe you. Maybe it's you. You're the first believer in your family. And maybe someday, generations from now, someone will be declaring the Gospel to somebody because the Lord saw fit to change your family tree through you. And maybe you're here this morning and you're not a believer. I'm so glad you're here. Because I want to tell you that, that maybe it's, it's not an accident that you're here. Maybe this is one of the first times you've ever visited a church before. And I want, you to, I want to invite you to, to lean into this conversation. Eavesdrop on what we're talking about here. Because 
I think you may find something here that could not only transform your life and free you from slavery to sin and deliver you to freedom in Christ, but also the lives of people that you may never meet. While the knowledge of the faith that was passed down through several generations of my family is true, and I'm grateful for it, it was strengthened and sustained through Christ by the brothers and sisters of their churches, especially men and women like the author of Psalm 71, who saw to it to pass the faith on to the next generation. And I think there's something here for us. There's some direct implications for us at Connection Church. I am amazed at God's faithfulness and kindness to us in our nine years. Many of you know we're just nine years old. Even as I hear the headlines about how church attendance and membership is declining all across the nation, the Lord has seen fit to increase ours. As we grow and mature as a church, this old saint reminds us that relaying God's goodness and greatness to others is an important part of discipleship and it's a task that older saints have a unique ability to do. And so I want to talk now to the older saints of Connection Church. And so for the sake of clarity, that's anyone around my age or older. I'm 43 this year. So I have one foot in both camps. My wife and I are are shuttling kids off to camp in one minute and we're trying our best to care for and love our aging parents in the next minute. So we, we live in both worlds. So older saints, can, can we talk? The older saint of Psalm 71 has a message for us and it's this. Never stop growing in Christ. Never stop testifying about God's greatness and never stop discipling. So I ask you, how are you proclaiming God's greatness and might to the next generation? What do you think about your role as part of the body of Connection Church? What do you think about the young men and women here who, according to the statistics about church attendance and membership, aren't supposed to be here? Do you know that you are a vital part of Christ's church? Do you know that when Paul talks in 1 Corinthians 12 about the body being made up of different parts, contributing to the healthy whole, you're a part of that. The different generations of the church make up the body. So listen to these words in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 in light of that. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as He chose. 
If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. And Paul takes the theme further in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 15 and 16. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So I don't know another way to say this, Older saints, but we need you. We need you to tell us of the mighty works of God. We need you to help us when we forget about God's faithfulness. We need you to point us to Jesus. We need you to share the stockpile of evidence you have about God's greatness and how He has saved you. And younger saints, For the sake of this exercise, remember, anyone around 43 or younger? This applies to you too. You need to remind us too. You need to tell us about the enthusiasm and energy you have for the Lord and what He's calling you to do. You need to remind us about God's faithfulness. I've been so encouraged by many of my younger brothers and sisters whose bold and deep faith has emboldened and grown my own. And I have been so ministered to by older saints who have applied grace, wisdom, and gospel truth to the circumstances in my life. I love it so much. I pray to God that we can have more of it. It is God who thought it would be a good idea that we all should be in the same room together, that we should be a church in the first place, that even though His work in bringing His kingdom to earth has nothing to do with us and everything to do with Him, we are invited to participate with Him. We're invited to participate in that work, even when the work is hard, and it often is. And trouble is all around us in this flawed world. You see, the Christian Life is not easy. Verses 19 through 21 in in Psalm 71 illustrate this. And they imply the world's brokenness. Take a look at that again with me. In verse 19, your righteousness, O God, reaches the high heavens, you who have done great things. O God, who is like you? Listen to this. You who have made me see many troubles and calamities, many will revive me again. From the depths of the earth you will bring me up again. You will increase my greatness and comfort me again. And here we have another gospel seed. He knows that life has been hard, but he has had confidence that the Lord would revive him again and bring him up again, increase his greatness again, and comfort him again so we can rest in God's resurrection power. And this is our gospel seed. Who do these verses remind you of? Who else saw trouble and calamities but was then revived? Who else was lowered to the depths of the earth but was then brought up again? Who else was brought low but then greatness was restored? 
Whose righteousness reached the high heaven? It's Jesus. God's resurrection power was made visible in the person and work of Jesus who came to be with us. He took the place of sinners and made a way for us to be revived again. He made a way for us to be brought up again, increased and comforted. And because of Christ, we too can hope for the day when Christ's righteousness reflected in us will reach the high heavens such that we will be seated at the right hand of Jesus. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake, He made Him, that is Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. And our response to this great news is the same as the psalmist. We can rejoice in God's deliverance. God rescued the psalmist from being put to shame. And instead, put to shame his enemies. God rescued us from our shame by taking it from us and nailing it to the cross with himself so that we no longer have to be burdened with it, but be free. Free to dance and sing and shout. The final verses of this psalm show us the worshipful posture of the author after remembering all of God's attributes. I'll leave you this morning with something that I I found in my family research as I was preparing to preach this morning. It's a way for me to honor fathers on Father's Day. I know that this day means some different things for each of us. Some of you are profoundly missing your father this morning. Some of you don't have a, or didn't have a father figure that was positive, that pointed you to Jesus. Some of you had an absent father. So whatever your experience is with your earthly father, I want you to know that for the last several minutes we have talked about your heavenly father. And it is He who we have spoken of. And we have learned who He is and what He is like. And I want you to know that He loves you. He knows you. He calls you by name. And you are one of His precious children. You recall earlier I was talking about my family arriving in Kansas. My great-grandfather, Edward, was one of those family, family members. And I want to share with you a letter he wrote to his wife, Julietta, my great-grandmother. And he wrote it to their children, among whom was my grandma, Cordelia. This was written in August 1940. And so if you'll allow me, I want to share a portion of this letter with you as we wrap up our time together. It's written in impossibly beautiful cursive that I can barely read. <laughs> Great-grandpa Edward was evidently about ready to undergo some kind of surgery. I don't know what it is, but he was fearful that that he wouldn't survive it. And so this is what he wrote. My dear beloved Etta and children, in a very short time, I shall again have to undergo another operation, the outcome of which only the Lord knows. 
But whatever that may be, let us be assured that it is the Lord's will and as children of God abide by his decisions. All these days I have prayed to the Lord to spare my life and give me health again. He will answer that prayer in due time and in a way that will be best for us all, even if we do not see it that way now. I cannot leave you money, but something far greater than that which the Lord has given to the world, namely his precious word. This cannot be taken from you, which teaches us the way to salvation Study this word diligently, believe in it, trust in it, and remain steadfast in faith until your end, so that when the Lord comes to call, we may all be reunited and enter with him in heavenly bliss, your husband and father, Edward. And just like the psalmist who ended his psalm with praise and worship, great-grandpa Edward wrote the title, right up here in the corner, of a hymn presumably one of his favorites or at least appropriate for the circumstance that he found himself in. And I assume he wanted the family to sing that together. Well, by God's grace, he survived the surgery and he lived another 23 years. And so to close, I want to read just three of these verses to the hymn, Jesus Christ, my sure defense and my Savior ever liveth. May these be stones of remembrance for us this morning about what we have in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, my sure defense and my Savior ever liveth. Knowing this, my confidence rests upon the hope it giveth. Though the night, be death, though the night of death be fraught, still with many an anxious thought, I am flesh and must return unto dust whence I am taken. But by faith I now discern that from death I shall awaken with my Savior to abide in His glory at His side. Then these eyes my Lord shall know, my Redeemer and my brother. In His love my soul shall glow, I myself and not another. Then the weakness I feel here shall forever disappear. Let's pray together. God, thank you. God, thank you that your word abides with us forever. That because of who you are and what you've done, by sending Jesus to take our place, we now can rely on you forever. We can remember your faithfulness. We can rejoice in your deliverance. We can relay your greatness. Thank you that this is true. Thank you, Lord, for putting your church together, for calling us to be members of one another in your church. Thank you for all of the ways that you use us to spur one another on to follow you and in the end be taken up with you in glory. Thank you that these things are true. 
And God, would you help us now to respond just as the psalmist did in worship. Help us to sing and declare your greatness because these things are true. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.